Welcome to Hauser Community Church Online. Let's join Pastor as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and unpacks the Word of God for us. After the message, we'll tell you how to contact us. Oh Lord, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator and Sustainer, God, we worship you. You are the Holy One. You, Lord, are patient. You're gracious and completely just. Jesus, your name is far above any other name. And at your name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. We pray this morning our prayer of confession. For Lord, we know we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. We ask for your forgiveness for allowing idols to come into our lives and for our indifference about the idols that are around us. We ask that you would cleanse us of our sin, Lord, as you promised to do. We ask that you would produce within us faithfulness by the power of your spirit. Father, we thank you that you're the giver of good gifts, the most precious being your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that you provide, for the fellowship of believers, for your spirit that is dwelling within us, and the future hope that we have, that Jesus, you will return, and we are not lost because of you. We lift to you now our requests, Lord. We ask for the healing of the sick uh, in our congregation. I thank you that I've seen some faces this morning that have been sick, and it's wonderful to see that you have shown your mercy once again and just bringing your people back. I thank you, Lord, and, and we pray for those who are sick and who have had some, um, some test results that come back that are not favorable, but Lord, you are bigger and greater and more powerful, and we ask for, we ask for healing. We ask that you would work a miraculous way, and, but we trust every decision, Lord. We know that we are ultimately healed in Jesus Christ, and we praise you and thank you. Lord, we ask also that you would draw your people to yourself, creating a desire in us to follow you, to walk in your ways, to speak of your goodness, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We ask that you would save the lost this morning, that you would spur us on to create disciples. Lord, we ask that you would provide workers of the harvest out of this group right here, whatever that looks like. We pray, Lord, we know that the harvest is plentiful, and you say pray for workers of the harvest because you promise to provide them. God, your kingdom is growing, and we praise you for that. So we ask that you would provide leaders and workers and, and teachers and volunteers and, and people who are going to go back to work and proclaim your goodness. We want to lift up this morning Grace Community or Grace Church uh, in North Bend. We ask that the word would go forth faithfully, that your people there would obey you and they would be a light shining in that community. We pray for Village Missions, that you would continue to provide for uh, open pulpits, Lord. We need more pastors across the nation to fill pulpits in rural areas, and, and we ask that you would provide those pastors. 
We lift before you our missionaries, Mike and Drina, who are coming soon, that you would bless their journey here and prepare their hearts to share what you are doing through their missions. Father, we ask that you would be with our children as they go in the back today in Children's Church, that you would be with the workers, that you would proclaim your, your good news through them, and that you would raise up faithful uh, men and women of God. Lord, we thank you of the grace that you give us. I ask that the words of my heart and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, kiddos, you are released. The rest of you, if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to Acts 17. Well, good morning, church. John Calvin, he once wrote, a man's nature, or the heart of man, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, our hearts and our lives, they just seem to be this assembly line of, that uh, p- produces one idol after another. Even if we don't want it to, we see that it's all striving to replace Jesus Christ as, as ultimate in our life. We see that uh, even though our, our desire is to serve the Lord and, and to live for Him, we have that pull constantly of finances and addictions and passions and all of those things are, are longing and pining for our attention to replace Jesus. And if we just walk out of the building and we walk around town or we scan social media or, or we listen to the news or watch a movie, we could see that not only does our world have idols and it's packed full of idols, but it celebrates idolatry. Now, as Christians, we're called to expose idolatry, and we're, we're called to lead the nations to the one true God. We're, we're called to expose it because it's false, because it's leading people astray, because it is pulling them away from the one true God. We're called to point away from the empty offerings of false gods and reveal that the chief end of man, that our, our highest purpose is to love God and enjoy him forever. And this all begins with us. And it all begins when we learn how to take offense at idolatry. So look at the text with me, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, if you remember, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's been kicked out of Thessalonica and Berea. The Jews ran him off, and, and he's, he's gone to Athens, and he's waiting for them to come. And as he's waiting at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So this doesn't mean that he has this, our offense of of idolatry is this, um, this 
detached snobbery from culture. Like, oh, we're so far above culture, we are, it's all below us. Paul does not snub his nose at the beauty in Athens. It was a wonderful city. I mean, it had beautiful statues, beautiful buildings, that architectural wonder of the world at that time. Still, we have people travel to Athens and look at, even the ruins are fascinating. Creativity and beauty and art and culture, all of those things reveal that we reflect a very creative God. That he is created. The one who designed the sunset, the sunrise if you get up that early. The ocean waves, the mountain peaks. He is a creative God who creates the beauty around us. But because of sin... Our reflections of him in creativity, in culture, in art are often distorted. So Paul, he, he's in Athens, he's walking around, he sees it's a city full of idols, monument after monument after monument. It is announcing humanity's rejection of the one true God. And if we would do the same thing, we might not have a city full of marble idols. Uh, We might not have a Parthenon, but we just, a, a lot of our culture we see celebrates idolatry. If we would just look a little bit deeper at what it's announcing. In America, our biggest idol is self. The idol of self. Be whoever you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. Define yourself however you want to define yourself. As a society, we have moved from God and removed him from his place. And we haven't placed a marble idol. We haven't placed a bunch of other gods. We've just placed ourselves in his position. Or if we just look around, we don't have to look hard. Status, money, sex, sports, possessions, self-worth, employment, bank accounts, retirement, comfort, television, education, political status, wokeness. All of them are seeking to knock the one true God off of his throne and set themselves up as God in your life. A believer, we have to be jealous for the holiness of God. We have to be jealous for who he is. The word used here for provoked, his his spirit was provoked within him is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to reveal God's anger at idolatry. So we see it in passages like 2 Chronicles 28. In every city, Ahaz made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. We see in Isaiah, Isaiah says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, actually God says this, who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And this isn't, pettiness on God's behalf. Him being provoked to anger about false gods is not petty. His jealousy for his people is not petty. It would be unloving for the one true God to be indifferent toward the very thing that is dragging people to hell. For God to be provoked to anger about idolatry is 
amazing display of his love. Ultimately saying, I love my people. I do not want them to be destroyed. And ultimately, it's about his glory far above everything else. And we shouldn't be indifferent. We should be concerned that the nations around us are so easily deceived. We should be provoked to anger that Satan is blinding so many people around us. We should see the nations around us and we should see them as a people without Christ heading unprepared for a judgment day in which they will meet certain condemnation if they don't know the one true God. We should see people seeking salvation in, in false hopes, in false desires, in false gods, in false religions, and desire to tell them about Jesus. We should be provoked to want to say something. But the very first thing idolatry around us should do is not make us open our mouths, but drop us to our knees. We should be a people of prayer, praying, God, look at this. I know you see this, but would you give me wisdom to engage wisely, gently, respectfully? Would you give me wisdom to talk to people about the false gods that they're setting up in their lives? Would you, Lord, soften their hearts? Would you expose to them the cancer of idolatry? Would you open the eyes of the blind? Would you, Lord, give me power through your spirit who you promise in Acts 1.8 to be your witness, to speak light into this dark world around me. And then it should provoke us to speak. So Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So he reasoned. So he went, so he proclaimed the gospel. I tell you this morning that anything, if you are seeking, seeking value or identity in anything, if you're putting anything in the place of God, if you, if you are, are exalting anything above him, it cannot deliver. It will actually just enslave you. If your ultimate desire is money, you will never have enough. If it's sex, you will never get enough. It is family, you will always be let down because we're all human. If it's comfort, the moment suffering comes, it's gone. If it's food, it'll never satisfy. If it's alcohol or drugs, it is just going to destroy you. But Jesus is the one who sets you free. He gives you life to the fullest. He, he frees you to live the life that you were created to live. Turn to Jesus this morning. Tell the nations around you, the people who are stuck in slavery, turn to Jesus. And we speak the gospel. And as we speak the gospel, it is going to challenge idolatry. Look at verse 17. So, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout people in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
it almost seems like these, these things shouldn't go together. Paul sees idols, he goes to the synagogue. <laughs> like the marketplace sounds like a legit place, probably selling idols there. Devout people in the synagogue, that's where he's going to preach about idolatry. Paul goes to the synagogues, he goes to devout people, he goes to marketplaces because idolatry is everywhere. It is everywhere. It is in the church. It is outside of the church. It permeates every part of culture. From the church to the checkout stand, it is everywhere in between. We must not think that we're above idolatry. We must not come to passages like this and say, ah, I don't have an idol in my house, no big deal. I'll move along. We have to always be ready to expose idols in our own heart, in the hearts of those around us. That's why it's so important to continually proclaim the gospel. I will tell you the gospel every Sunday um, until the Lord calls me home. Because we need to hear it. Because as we speak the gospel to one another, as we call out idolatry in one another's lives, we are continually being reminded that Jesus is God and nothing else. And you might be thinking, Greg, I know Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus is God. And and I say, amen, praise the Lord that you believe that. But if you're honest, you will say, I do feel the pull of idols in my life. I do put myself before God. I do put my family before God. I do put my career. I do put my enjoyment. I do put my future, food, my health, all of this before God at times in my life. And that's when the gospel comes in and says, Jesus says, I know. That's why I died for you. That's why I lived the perfect life, to cleanse you from that sin, to keep reminding you of who I am, to change your heart, your heart that was so bent toward yourself and idols and gave you a new one that's bent toward me. That's why I tell you that nothing in this world can can offer you anything or salvation or give you fulfillment apart from me. And the the gospel is gonna challenge false beliefs. So we see he goes and he reasons in every part of the city. And then he comes to verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and resurrection. Paul runs into those who are followers of Epicurean philosophy. Everybody knows what they believe, right? No, I had to look it up too, don't worry. They believe that even if gods did exist, which they probably don't, they say, they're so far removed from us, they're so far above us that they could care, couldn't care less about us. We're so beneath them that they're not going to even bother with humanity. They believe that the purpose of life is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain, right? We hear that gospel preached constantly. They say the way to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain is it's simple. All you have to do is learn to practice the virtuous life. All you have to do is have good friends Avoid negative people. Have no fear of distant gods or judgment or even the afterlife. Don't worry about that stuff and you'll be fine. 
That's how you maximize pleasure and minimize pain. So Paul comes in and he says, I'm going to preach Christ to them. The God who actually didn't stay distant, he put on flesh and died for you. He suffered for you. He put on pain so that you could be saved. And their attention is piqued. Tell me more, you babbler. You're an idiot, but I want to hear you speak because it sounds good. And what they were teaching is eerily close to what a lot of people preach in churches and write in Christian books. If they say all you have to do is hang around the right people, all you have to do is be positive, be confident, and just try really hard and you're going to be fine. And that is nonsense. You need Jesus. You will mess it up if you try every time. Apart from him. Apart from him, you will probably find temporary happiness for a moment, but you will have eternity in torment. Paul also is challenged by the Stoics. They're materialists, so they believe that God is in everything and everything is in God. So um, they don't really believe in God. They think he's this energy that um, the natural world is created by and sustained by. He's, he is uh, reason or the logos uh, of the world. It makes himself visible in beauty and order and things like that. But Paul's message of Jesus challenges that view. And Paul, I mean, and John in his gospel picks this up, this idea of the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was God. So they're preaching and we're preaching. No, it is Jesus Christ who is the creator, who is the sustainer. He is the beginning of wisdom. So the gospel, as we proclaim it, is going to challenge what the world celebrates as truth. Because the world that we live in, it desires to redefine truth to fit your agenda. Whatever you want truth to be, as long as it aligns with what you agree with, that's what it is. Instead of learning truth to align your life to God's will. But the most effective way to share the gospel is to create conversation. Paul doesn't say, you guys are idiots. Look at what you believe. No, look at what he says, starting in verse 18. They call him an idiot, actually. What does this babbler wish to say? He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and resurrection. I'm purposefully not saying the resurrection because they thought Paul is preaching two gods here. Jesus and Anastasis, who is a god of resurrection, So they think Paul is there preaching these two different gods. And this opens an opportunity for Paul to have a conversation with them, to begin on common ground. This is what you think I'm saying. Perfect. Let me explain to you what I'm actually saying. That Jesus is the resurrected God and put on humanity to save humanity. Paul's able to start from the very beginning and lead them to the cross. He's, he's able to meet them where they are. They have no idea who Jesus is or, or um, what the resurrection is. They don't even believe in the resurrection. They just think it's another God. And he's able to point them to Christ. But the way we present the gospel should cause people to say, 
tell me more. Tell me what you're saying. Tell me, explain to me. Yes, the gospel is very offensive. You speak it, it will be offensive. But it can be presented in a way that creates conversation. That creates, our desire should be, uh, I want people to hear the gospel, not turn away from me immediately. Now, much of our culture is, they believe that they've moved beyond um, the need for God. That's this culture too. They believe we're Greeks. Um, we're, we're higher minded than, than most of the world. Um, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they thought, who is this babbler? Meaning, who is this picker up of, I think the word picture is a bird that picks up scraps. So it's someone who's just grabbing a hold of a few things that they like and preaching it to them. Frederick Nietzsche said the same thing, though. He said, God is dead, and, and we've killed him. We have, we've moved beyond the need for God. But our hope is that the gospel of Jesus Christ can turn the hardest hearts, the ones who are dead set against God, do, who are dead towards God, toward him and salvation. We don't need to fight. We just need to share in faith that God can change the heart. And as we share, we're going to expose idolatry. Paul starts with their religion. Look at verse 22. So Paul, he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He recognizes their religion. He doesn't play it down. He doesn't say... I recognize that you are a bunch of foolish worshipers of other gods. He meets them where they are. I recognize that you're religious. As Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy, he's walking around, he's noticing all the idols. He says, obviously, they're worshiping to everything they can just in case they mess up. They even have an altar to some god that they don't even know who he is just in case they forgot one. They're saying, we recovered that because we don't want to offend any gods. So he says, I perceive you're very religious. He meets them where they can agree. And we can start in the same place. We could say Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, Muslims. I, I perceive that you are very religious. You're religious in every way. You're striving as hard as you can to find God, to, to please God. As Christians, we often say we're not religious. We're in a relationship. I've heard that. I probably said that, but religion is, is simply the belief in and worship of a God or gods. It's a system of faith. We are religious people. We don't want to say we're religious people because we want to be wrapped up with the rest of the world's religions, but we are. We believe in God. We worship God. That's what we do. But it doesn't mean we meet them in their religion and say, don't worry, all religions and all paths meet at the same place. They all lead to God. That's called pluralism. It's not the gospel. Paul will later write, um, I'm just applying what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not God. I don't want you to be a participant with demons. So he's saying that it is false. We're not agreeing with other religions. We're not celebrating other religions. We are just meeting at that common point. We're working to expose the one true God. And we do this by taking them and their heart, 
through a journey of their own life and their own heart's desires. So as the gospel will continue to peel back layers as Paul starts to to preach it to them, we see that he comes next to their worship. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. He says, I see you're religious. I see you even worship. Everyone worships something. No matter who you are, no matter if you're religious or not, you worship something because we're all created as worshipers. And of course, we're created to worship the one true God, and we know the fall distorted that, and and we worship various things. Now we worship, instead of the altar of the unknown God, we worship at the altar of, of TV or the ball field or the ATM or the naked figure on the screen or, or a drug or the perfect family or whatever you want to put in that place. All revealing this heart that is longing for something, longing to worship, longing to celebrate and exalt something. We're created to reflect God to the world, church. We're created to worship the one who creates and sustains us, who loves and provides us. We're created to display and and reveal only God deserves worship. He is all-powerful. He is the creator of all. He's self-sufficient. He's not served by human hands. He's the source of life and breath. He creates within us this longing, this desire to search for him. He reveals himself to us in his word. To worship anything other than him is sin. It's idolatry. So I would ask you this morning, where is your worship? What is your time focused on? What do you celebrate more than anything else? Where do you uh, go when times get tough? Where do you go when blessings come? What is all your money spent on? These are all, this is a few ways to gauge where is my heart? What am I worshiping? Ask someone, um, what are you worshiping? Some of you this morning need to reorder your worship. But as Paul continues on, as we look again at verse 23, he peels back another layer of idolatry and says, what you're actually worshiping is a weak and false God. Paul reveals the God they're serving is is impersonal. The altar to the unknown God. How heartwarming is that? We worship, we have no clue what we worship. What good is a God who could couldn't care less about his creation. But this is not the God we preach. We preach a God who is intimately involved with life, who is intimately involved in salvation, who draws his people to himself, who knows the number of hair on some of your heads. Not, it's easier on some of us than others. He's involved in the very breath we breathe. We see in verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, but he gives life to all 
mankind, breath and everything. Verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. We preach a God who is intimately involved in history. Look at verse 26. He made from one man to every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. We preach a God who desires to be, to be um, sought, that they should seek God, verse 27, and perhaps feel their way toward him. We preach a God who desires to be worshipped and obeyed, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We preach a God who will judge the world in justice because he has fixed a day, verse 31, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Our God is a personal God, one who's shown us his name, told us his name. If your God is less than that, he wouldn't care enough about you to save you anyway. But Paul also exposes their gods are needy. Look at verse 24 again. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, or he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Their gods were restricted to temples and they needed humanity to serve them. And we, we should ask the question, why in the world would you worship a God who is restricted in a temple and who needs you? Let me tell you why. Because you can control a God like that. You can leave a God like that in the church and live however you want outside the church. You can serve him and feel all warm and fuzzy inside whenever you do. And a lot of people, they take Jesus and they treat him that way. They leave him at home or on the nightstand or in the church and they will return to him whenever they need something from him. Or they will offer to serve him as if he needed them to do it. But the God we preach is not needy. He's the great I am. He is all self-sufficient, all powerful, ever-present, not created. He is the creator, the sustainer. So let me ask you, have you made God into this needy God who is restricted to the church, who is restricted to your Bible, but not part of the rest of your life? Have you boiled him down to a God who needs you instead of a God you desperately need? If so, you're not following the triune God. You're following a needy, weak image of a God of your own making. A false God that can't save. But underneath these false gods is a, it's this sense of longing. God made... One man from every nation, verse 26, on all the face of the earth, uh, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul takes the Athenians back to Adam. He says the desire to reign and to rule, to flourish, to succeed, to conquer, to be um, knowledgeable is all placed in you by God. And he was given that to you and called you to spread it to the ends of the earth. This longing for unity that you have as a people, it was put in you because God created you to reflect his perfect relationship in the Trinity. But as we know, those desires, they get distorted by the fall and God removes us from the garden and he spreads us all over the face of the earth. But he remained the governing source of all the nations. And by doing this, Paul, he's saying uh, that there are not multiple gods that, that govern different parts of the world. There is one true God ruling over all the nations, even if they don't know him. And as the nations are spread out and their idolatrous uh, beliefs start to develop because they're given this desire to feel their way towards him, false religions come, false beliefs come, wayward desires come, longing for love and joy and peace are all echoes of a longing for the one true God. All striving and groping to find him like blind people in the darkness, all blinded by sin, blinded by Satan. But the gospel comes like this, this beacon in the light, shining forth, revealing that Jesus is our heart's longing. Jesus is the one that we've been looking for. I would say if you hear this morning, if you're here and you're searching for an answer, the word of God is that answer. Jesus is that answer. But Paul, like with any real presentation of the gospel, we have to come to this point of response. He brings them to this point. Not, does he, he doesn't just expose this problem and say, you're a bunch of idolaters. Good luck. You're going to hell. That's it. The gospel calls everyone to turn from idolatry. So Paul says there have been times of ignorance in the past. We saw that before in Acts 14. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. He allowed them to follow false gods. This doesn't mean that they weren't held responsible. But in Athens, we see that they had this time of prosperity, this time of glory, success, and wealth. They were doing really well. It doesn't look like God is coming against them. And the ignorance that they had of God was not judged as harshly as it could have been. But he says, now the time is coming. The gospel has been set free and the nations will be judged. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And then look what he does. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Church, when we come to verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere 
to repent should ignite us with this desire to tell people of Jesus. To say now is the time to repent. This is a call for believers to sound the trumpet. You need to tell people to turn toward Jesus. It's a call for the unbeliever to turn from wickedness and idolatry to the one true God. To repent. And that doesn't mean just pray a prayer and live however you want. It's realizing I have not been following God and I desire to follow Him and I will for the rest of my life. That I'm a new creation. I no longer live the old life but live the new by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Paul says the day of judgment is coming. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The day of judgment is fixed. It's as certain, it's, it's more certain than the sunrise tomorrow. It will, all will be judged in righteousness. All who fall short of the glory of God will be judged justly receiving the punishment that they deserve. But all who hide in Jesus will receive eternal life. Receive life in Jesus. And the judge will be the resurrected Christ. The one who says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they'll listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you hear the call this morning of the shepherd, you hear the voice because you are his sheep. And all who hear him and all who follow him and all who repent will come and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, at that moment of judgment. And all who reject him will hear, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now is the time to decide. Today is the day of salvation. Paul says, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Join him in his kingdom. Join him in proclaiming this good news to the ends of the earth. Or mock like they do and receive due judgment. So I want to do something this morning um, that I have never done in five years of being at Hauser. I want to, in the next two songs, open the front of the stage for you to come here and pray. And if you, if you want to sit where you are, feel free to sit where you are and pray. That's fine. There's nothing super spiritual about coming up here. It's just a physical response. It's getting off of your uh, rear end and coming to the front and saying, I am going to make a change this morning. Come by yourself, come with someone, come pray with me, pray by yourself. But it's for the believer to come and repent of the idolatry that you've allowed to creep into your life and to renew your commitment to following Jesus Christ alone.
This is for the unbeliever who has followed, you followed a false god your entire life and the Spirit has revealed to you this morning that you have been following a false god. But Jesus is the one true God. And you desire to cast yourself at his feet and to ask for mercy and grace and forgiveness from sin. You, re- you desire to repent and follow him by the power of his spirit. Come this morning and pray if, if someone is on your heart. Come this morning and pray, believer and non-believer. Or if you hear his voice, as the writer of Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts today. Let's pray. Father, I know you are good. And I thank you for your patience with us. We, we constantly are producing idols. And a lot of times we, we set them in your place. And we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would change us that you would renew in us a desire to follow you. I pray, God, that you would, you would stir in our hearts. I pray if there are any who are lost today, that you would give them boldness to, to step out and speak with someone and help us as a church to respond and disciple them and shepherd them toward you in faithfulness. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591 or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon, 97459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.